It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. It's true. And now, here's Pete. It's all true. Thank you, John. <laughs> What's going on? Welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, or uh, you can go to thepetecalendarshow.com and uh, click subscribe there as well. You can also become a patron of the program, which means you get exclusive content like the live stream access, the bumper stickers, and of course, the uh, the eternal satisfaction of knowing that you helped put food on the table for me and Christy. Well, mainly... Well, mainly me, because Christy works too, so she's <laughs> she's she's able to provide her own food on the table. Um, but folks like, uh, for example, patrons like Daniel, Lisa, Eric, Loretta, Nancy, Stephen, David, Curtis, Sherry, Nick, Mark, and Paul. Thank you very much. They all became patrons. You can as well go to thepetecalendarshow.com. I covered this yesterday, a little bit yesterday. I was filling in down in Charlotte on WBT uh, from noon to three, and uh, I covered some of this story, uh, but I figured I would go you know, more in-depth on this concept, on this topic uh, today on the podcast. So um, the title of this piece was in the New York Times. It was called A Fourth of July Symbol of Unity That May No Longer Unite. And it's the flag. Spoiler, it's the flag. <laughs> the U.S. flag. It doesn't unite us anymore. Yeah, why? I don't know. I kind of look at the flag and I say, oh, that's the American flag. I'm an American. That's my flag. It's pretty logical for me. It's like A, then B, then C, just very linear for me. But apparently not so for a lot of other people. And this story takes place in Southold, New York, a Long Island town. The American flag flies in paint on, so it doesn't fly at all. It's painted on the side of a potato truck. And uh, the potato truck is owned by Peter Triber or Treber Jr. It's a local landmark parked permanently on County Route 48, doing little more, he thought, than drawing attention to his family farm. And this is a really big, it's a large truck. You ever see the trucks driving around town with the big billboards, like on the back of the flatbed? It's like that kind of a size truck. And it's got an American flag on it. And it's at the farm. And uh, he, you know, grows produce. And uh, he didn't think anything of it. It's just, hey, there's this flag. It's out front. Look at us. And um, he didn't think anything of it, according to the New York Times article here by Sarah Maslin Near who says uh, didn't think anything of it until he tried to sell his produce at a local green market where he sells things like wild bergamo. I have no idea what that is. But is it really wild if you're growing it? If you've cultivated... Okay, I digress. Anyway, honey and sunflowers. Also, he had trouble striking a deal. He said until he let his liberal leanings slip out in conversation with a customer. And she said to him, oh, you know, I wasn't so sure about you. I thought you were some flag waving something or other. That's what the woman said. And she mentioned his potato truck with the big American flag. That's why she was apprehensive of interacting with me, he said. It was a little sad to me. It shows the dichotomy of the country that a flag can mean that. That I had to think, do I need to reconsider having that out there? I read this story and I 
it makes me sad, as I said uh, yesterday on the radio show, it makes me sad. Um, because I see it as, this is sort of the natural conclusion. When you hate your political opponents so much that you then have to hate your own flag, too, because they like it. Oh my gosh, I hate those Trump supporters so much. And they keep, you know, flying that flag and walking around with the American flag. And how dare they? And and I hate that flag now, too, because it's their flag. You just gave it up. You just surrendered the flag to your political opponents, even though you're all Americans. You just surrendered the flag. Politicians of both parties, according to the New York Times article, have long sought to wrap themselves in the flag, but something may be changing. Today, flying the flag uh, from the back of a pickup truck or over a lawn is increasingly seen as a clue, albeit an imperfect one, to a person's political affiliation in a deeply divided nation. Why? Why would, if this is a political thing, why would somebody see, why would a Democrat see the American flag and think that person's a Republican (laughs) and not a Democrat? What does that tell you? Like This is, you're kind of telling on yourself, guys, this is projection, you know? It's not the fault of Republicans that they love the American flag. That's not a bad thing. That's not just their flag. It's not just their country. It's your flag. It's your country. It's your symbol, too. You can use it. You should use it. And then the New York Times says this. Supporters of former President Donald J. Trump have embraced the flag so fervently at his rallies, across conservative media, and even during the January 6th assault on the Capitol that many liberals like Mr. Treber, the farmer, worry that the left has all but ceded the national emblem to the right. So in other words, it's Trump's fault. (laughs) It's Trump's fault that we've surrendered our own flag. This is what I mean. You guys, you hate Trump so much. You hate him so much that you can't even love your own flag? Really? He, it's not his flag. It's not the Trump supporters' flag. It's not, uh, the, it's not the Republican Party flag. It's the American flag. It's all of our flag. The, the Times goes on to say what was once a unifying symbol, there is a star on it for each state, after all, is now alienating to some. Who is alienated? <sighs> I would, like, I would really love to hear from somebody who says that the, the American flag alienates them. That they see the American flag and, and this is an alienating symbol to them. Are you even allowed to say alienating? Undocumenting. It's an undocumenting flag to some. <laughs> it stripes now fault lines between people who kneel while the Star-Spangled Banner plays and those for whom not pledging allegiance is an affront. And and look, don't get me wrong. There is a there is a there is an amount of uh, a not negligible amount of performative theater, if you will, that definitely is on display among a lot of uh, folks on the right that are, you know, they make a big deal about showing you that they care. You know, there is a performative aspect absolutely to that. And 
they're probably using it as some sort of a measurement of some kind, a litmus test to see who's standing, see who's hands on the heart and who's, you know, there's, there's like uh, uber policing of the codes and such. I'm sure that exists. I know it does. I know there are people that do that. By and large, they don't. But I know there are people who do. Still not a reason to abandon your flag. <laughs> it's still not a reason to think that the flag is not yours as an American. Okay. They're just trying to let everybody know, I love America. And you can love America too. But see, this is what I mean. Like, their performance, their exhibitionism, that they love America, somehow makes you not want to love America? Then then what, what is it, like, what are you judging your love of the country on then? Is it just that one person? And their their exhibitionism. Um, it goes on. It goes on to state uh, it has uh, made the celebration of the Fourth of July a patriotic bunting and cakes with blueberries and strawberries arranged in old, into old glory into another cleft in a country that seems no longer quite so indivisible under a flag threatening to fray. I, like I get what the writer is doing here. You know, look at me. Speaking of performances, like all of my flourishes and the writing and such. Like I get it. I get it. You're trying to, you, you got to write a July 4th story and you're trying to, you know, make it literature. But it, this stuff rarely works. I don't think it works here. Um, and honestly, it almost comes off as, uh, as an attempt to divide, almost like a rooting for the division. And maybe that's my bias coming through in my interpretation because it's the New York Times and I judge most articles in that paper to be rooting for division. So maybe that's why I'm reading it as such. Um, now, I do not know how to read uh, roofs. I don't know how to do that. Now, some people uh, at Balkan Roofing, like they're like the roof whisperers, um, but not really. They, um, well, because the roofs aren't alive. Okay, but they go to the roof and they're like, I can see like speak to me roof i can see like the panels or the shingles rather are out of alignment they're slipping or something now sometimes by the way people look at roofs and they think oh my gosh my roof is is terrible it needs repairs but it actually doesn't it's just hot and maybe it's a truss system and the folks at balkan roofing they're going to be able to identify you know if you actually have a problem or if you don't when's the last time you had somebody up on the roof to look at it right is it you i've never been on my roof i don't go up on roofs I, I like I'm too afraid of heights. I'm <laughs> too afraid of heights. I'm not going to go up on the roof. Uh, but if uh, if you've been up there and you've checked it out, more power to you. If you haven't, call Balkan Roofing. They'll come on out. They'll give you a free estimate. And if you do need a new roof, you can get one for as low as sixty nine dollars a month with financing from my friends at Balkan Roofing. Uh, these are third generation roofers. Great people, family-owned and operated. Give them a call at 628-0390. That's 628-0390. Or go to balkanroofing.com. That's B-A-L-K-E-N roofing.com. So the New York Times article says about 70% of Americans say that the flag makes them feel proud. 70%. That's it. This is a recent survey by YouGov, a global public opinion and data research firm. The sentiment was shared by about 80% of white Americans, just under 70% of Hispanic Americans, and slightly less than 60% of black Americans. The divisions were deeper when it came to politics. 66% of Republicans surveyed say they associate the flag with their own party. 
34% of Democrats said the same. Now, there are a couple, there, there's two different ways I interpret this. Number one is that Republicans associated with their party because their party is American and, you know, it, they, they just associate it with any political party. They could also associate it with the Republican Party because we're the real Americans, right? So there's that. On the Democrat side, again, two different interpretations, I think. Number one is, and there are others, uh, these are just the ones that I've considered, is uh, number one is that uh, they don't consider, Democrats don't consider the flag to be of their party because that's like an ownership thing. And uh, it's more about America and not the Democratic Party. And so they don't see it as that. Right, so that's one interpretation of it. And I guess the other interpretation is that uh, they don't associate it with their party because they don't like the flag very much. They think it's a Republican symbol now. And that's sad, if that's the case now. The New York Times piece continues that the sentiment of some conservatives is that a line was drawn when Colin Kaepernick, the former NFL quarterback, set off a national movement protesting the shootings of black men by police by taking a knee during the anthem back in 2016. His kneeling protest, uh, Kaepernick has said, still demonstrated respect for the flag, but others saw him as hijacking the flag for political purposes, which, yes, of course he did. Of course he did. He hijacked the flag and the anthem and the NFL in order to advance a political agenda. That's exactly what he did. And I'm not going to deny that. But now everybody then, you know, jumped onto their sides and went to their corners and said, well, this is appropriate, not appropriate. And maybe that's the beginning of it. But I, I do think there is truth here that. Like, this is a reaction to the left, like the the Republicans embracing the flag as they have, you know, with Donald Trump walking up onto the stage and like hugging the flag, that famous video. Um, Like a lot of that is a reaction to the left's actions in defending the, you know, desecration of the flag or the, you know, the attacks on the flag in America and like all of that. You guys gave the right the opening and they took advantage of it. And it being politics and all, when you give your opponent, uh, uh, you know, a clear lane to run, and you should expect them to run through that lane. Mary, uh, Mary Nelly Rodriguez, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Well, the first name. It's a weird Mary Nelly, M-A-R-Y-N-E-I-L-Y. Mary Neely Rodriguez. Ms. Rodriguez, 33 years old. She said she believed that Mr. Trump's most fervent supporters had done the same, hijacking the flag. She says uh, she was um, walking around with her fiance 4th of July weekend and said that she once uh, regularly flew the flag at her home in Freeport, about 80 miles west on Long Island, uh, taking it down only in winter for safekeeping. But three years ago, when spring came, Ms. Rodriguez, who is black and a Democrat, left the flag in storage. It hasn't come out since, she said, quote, it felt like it didn't belong to me anymore. This is what I mean. When I read this, it makes me sad because her hatred of Donald Trump is so great that it it consumed her love of the country and her flying of the flag. I mean, she put the flag out every year. She had a flagpole. She would put it out every year. This was part of a ritual. She did it for a reason. She did it because she loved America and wanted to display the flag. And now she doesn't. Why? Because Donald Trump likes the flag. Because Donald Trump's supporters like the flag? There's another piece by Noah Rothman talking about NPR's report that every year NPR reads the Declaration of Independence. For 32 years, it's done this on uh, on the morning show, Morning Edition. And uh, this year, 
because, of course, they uh, began their Friday morning news show saying that uh, for every year for the past 32 years, Morning Edition has broadcast a reading of the Declaration of Independence by NPR staff. But after last summer's protests and our nation attempting to confront our history, we want and need to be honest about the words in this document. And then what followed was a critique of that document. Um, you might say a, a critical examination of it. Um, that was mostly a long list of grievances and charges against King George III. A bizarre rebuke of the Declaration's central purpose, writes Noah Rothman at Commentary Magazine. NPR's hosts add that this tract declared, quote, all men are created equal, even though women, enslaved people, and indigenous Americans were not held as equal at the time. They note that the original draft of the Declaration was amended to exclude references to Scottish mercenaries and the evils of the African slave trade, which offended some of the delegates to the Continental Congress and represented an obstacle to its adoption. And finally, so basically this is like the committee work that was done, right? They're, they're bringing up things that were originally suggested to be in the Declaration, but then were cut out of the Declaration because they offended some of the white male landowners that were there. And so they're pointing to these things, obviously, in an attempt to say they were terrible people, they were racist, and this document is flawed. Um, finally, they say a racist slur against Native Americans, uh, that being the, quote, merciless Indian savages who were excited to total war against the colonies by the crown remained. That stayed in. So NPR then concludes uh, that this piece of, the piece of parchment encoded flaws and deeply ingrained hypocrisies into the nation's political DNA. It was only ever a venue to express our collective aspirations and hopes for what this country might one day become, but in many ways has never been. This is how sophisticates within the ecosystem of respectable liberal discourse think that you're supposed to talk about the American founding if you're an intellectually serious person. What this sort of talk reveals, however, is an astonishing parochialism or a narrowness of views. Noah Rothman says, quote, the presentism on display, presentism, that's an interesting word, but yeah, I, and I get it. It's like looking at the past through the present's eyes, and it's not fair to the past. He says the presentism on display in these remarks is not just myopic or nearsighted. It contributes to the cumulative condition in which the left is seeding the miracle of American democracy to the right. Unconditional patriotism and veneration for the historical accidents that culminated in the American experiment are increasingly regarded by the left as unrefined and naive. There is a certain amount of this, isn't there? This idea that you get like, um, or this vibe that you get that celebrating America isn't cool. Like, oh yeah, America, pff, whatever, right? That leaves the right to tell the, uh, the providential story of the American founding, a story that has the dual advantages of being both inspirational and true, <laughs> which is very helpful. Um, he goes on to call this, this was essentially a document by committee, and he says anybody who's ever been a part of that process, you got to like be amazed that it actually produced the document that it, that it did. No government had ever committed itself to the enlightened liberal ideals 
that we find in the Declaration of Independence in such a full-throated manner. And, he says, those ideals were very much a threat to the systems that kept men in chains all over the world, not just in the American South, right? The ideals, like, okay, fine, they're hypocrites. Fine, I give it to you, whatever. It's yours, take the argument. They're hypocrites, they're hypocrites, fine. But what about the ideals? What about the things that they put down on the paper that they are hypocrites in doing, but they are fine, but they put them down. And then what did that do to the world? What happened after they put those words to paper? The Declaration of Independence was not, as NPR insists, an expression of our unfulfilled aspirations. It was the codification of a set of values that actually pre-existed the Declaration of Independence by a century. This just happened to be the first time it got put, in da- it got put down on paper at great personal risk to the people who did it, by the way. Now, if you are trying to uh, eliminate some risk when you're buying or selling a home, then uh, here's how you do it. You call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, and they get your house sold quickly and for more money. This is what they do. They also can help you find a house. They helped Christy and me. We bought our house. Uh, We'll be moving in uh, in a couple of days. Christy's actually already putting some stuff in it. (laughs) She's very excited to get there. So if you are looking to buy or sell, call the only agent we did. That's Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. The number is 828-333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com is the website. Give her a call. Tell her I sent you. That's 828-333-4483. Call Rowena Patton today and then, uh, obviously, start packing. Uh, So Noah Rothman goes on to say that uh, the insulting notion that this country has only just now committed to confront our history, you've heard this a lot too, right? That NPR included in their story here that, uh, you know, as we now begin to confront our history, or the other one is uh, we're embarking on a racial reckoning. You're hearing this stuff, right? That's kind of insulting, don't you think? Rothman does, saying that, Uh, This is an attack on the generations of thoughtful idealists who sacrificed more to realize the Declaration of Independence unfulfilled promises than the denizens of the faculty lounge ever will. All over the world, what at the time was as much a founding document as a suicide pact has inspired liberty-loving people to demand their own emancipation. Skipping ahead to the very end of the piece here, which you can read, by the way, if you're a patron, I post all of the links to all of the... Uh, show prep material. It's all at the Patreon page. Um, He says, by all means, progressives, concede the vision of a liberated human species conceived in the Enlightenment and pursued first by the United States. Concede all of that to conservatives. Just give it to us. We're fine. Let us articulate the virtues of the American civic compact, the permeability of its social strata and the opportunities that it affords all who believe themselves capable of making it on merit and aptitude alone. Surrender to us the love of country that isn't alloyed by some laborious pedagogy about how awful we have always been. We'll be good stewards of that noble tradition. It is an enlivening and inspiring observance, a positive force, which has so much more capacity to arouse and animate than the hopeless pessimism that today masquerades as refinement. We will be its custodians, and we will reap its rewards. You guys are giving away the game. Not sure you realize that? Maybe you do. You're giving away the game. Related piece here. This is by Tristan Justice at thefederalist.com. 
U.S. hammer thrower Gwen Berry. Who, all right, first off, kudos to Gwen Berry. I had no idea there was such a sport in the Olympics called hammer throwing. I feel like I missed my calling. For real, like, I've, it's true. I have worked on projects around the house, and I thought I probably now could qualify. Well, I mean, I would have qualified back then, you know, doing some of these projects for the hammer throwing event. Um, Speaking of, uh, by the way, projects and such, uh, if you're doing a project, big or small, go look up my friends at General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com. Yeah, they've got all of the tools, okay? I mean, probably not hammers, okay? No, definitely not hammers. They don't have hammers there, but they've got bigger stuff, okay? Um, so they got the earth-moving equipment. they got scaffolding and ladders and stuff. they got tons of stuff. they got generators and tillers and mowers and pressure washers. If you're looking to buy some stuff, they've got chainsaws and trimmers and hedge clippers and mowers and blowers, gas and battery-powered. They've got it all. General Equipment Rental. Um, go to the website, generalrents.com. Get 10% off your first rental. Quality equipment, great pricing, excellent service. They, uh, they're located at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. And they're in Weaverville, obviously. Um, and they're family-owned and operated. Great people over there. They support the program, so support them. I appreciate that. Go to generalrents.com or walk on into the store in Weaverville. General Equipment Rental and think outside your toolbox. So uh, the U.S. hammer thrower, Gwen Berry, she was the one who is standing on the podium after she qualifies for the Olympics or whatever. She comes in third. Uh, she came in third. And she's standing up there. She's on the left side. And when they play the national anthem, she turns her back to the national anthem. And uh, President Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, she of the circling back, um, she was asked about this at a White House press briefing. And she said, quote, the president would say, of course, that part of that pride in our country means recognizing there are moments where we are as a country haven't lived up to our highest ideals. And it means respecting the right of people granted to them in the Constitution to peacefully protest. Now, the statement there is hardly surprising. Tristan Justice says that Biden's U.N. ambassador, Linda Thomas Greenfield, smeared her own country at the Global Forum back in April, condemning the U.S. as infected with rampant white supremacy. Her comments were followed by New York Times editorial board member and MSNBC analyst Mara Gay claiming that uh, the sight of dozens of American flags was disturbing. These are not fringe activists vilifying America as insidiously evil. These are some of the most prominent power players in the political establishment today, he says, up to and including the White House, who, have, who now uh, appear to have uh, taken over the Democratic Party, right? Last summer, there was a stir, uh, survey by Quillette.com. Um, uh, the magazine Quillette It showed 44% of self-identifying liberals supported destroying the monument on Mount Rushmore. And uh, the Democratic Party endorsed that idea in a tweet. Facing historic levels of such polarization, the United States is on track to politicizing patriotism. If the prior 18 months have illustrated anything, it's that this very politicization could destroy the country. He goes on to conclude uh, later on, a nation that hates itself cannot survive as a governable nation. And when that hatred is polarized, it's only going to feed on itself. He's exactly right. Uh, you, you can't. I mean, what kind of a country do you have that is comprised of people who hate it? That's why the culture war is so important. 
especially in schools, where the next generation is actively indoctrinated with lessons that teach American racism as opposed to American exceptionalism. And this is really at the core of this argument over CRT and the you know social studies and history standards in North Carolina that got voted on. You have some people that are like, you know, America need you need to teach kids that America is an exceptional nation. And the uh, alternative argument is that we don't want to teach them that because that's just not true. We need to teach them the bad stuff. And then, of course, the Republicans, the conservatives are like, well, we're not saying don't teach the bad stuff. We're saying teach all of it. You teach the bad and the good. And there seems to be this desire among a lot of folks on the left that you don't teach the good because, well, you know, they'll get that from other places. They see that everywhere. We're the only place that they're going to get the truth. And the truth is America sucks. Like that's that's the vibe we're getting here. And every time we give you the opportunity to prove us wrong about that, you don't exactly come through. <laughs> you, you don't. <laughs> you don't. Um he goes on to say there is a reason why aggressively woke children have now permeated the nation's legacy institutions to foster the racist concepts enshrined in critical race theory from corporate newsrooms to corporate boardrooms. This is a call on progressives to take a step back and acknowledge that in the end, America is a truly exceptional nation that empowers them with the very rights they've embraced to tear it down. They might want to think through the historically likely results of doing so. So here's where I, um, here's where I quibble. I disagree. I suspect those uh, folks who are interested in tearing it down have actually thought it through. They, they actually know quite well what they are doing. They are interested in tearing it down because this is the entire purpose of the project. It's to replace the American system with their attempt at utopia which has never been tried before, we are told. It's never been tried. This is, and I've said it before, this is the manifestation of over 100 years of neo-Marxist philosophy that has permeated all of the cultural institutions in America. I've been doing this now for 20 years. We've been talking about it for the full 20 years. Ever since I got into talk radio and I was a reporter and a host, this stuff has been part of the the dialogue on the right at least the right has been very aware of this it's been unable to stop it because i think a lot of people on the right have been relying on people on the left uh, the more moderate liberal classical liberal types you know that believe in free speech but are un- they're unwilling to rein in their own progressive base because they need them those are their allies and they agree with them on so many things and okay fine maybe they go a little too far but their hearts are in the right place. They're not actually. And if we're going to rely on moderate liberals to help rein in the excesses of the hard left, it's not going to happen. They're not going to be there for us. They haven't been. Like, at what point? I mean, they're getting canceled too, right? They're getting fired. Stuff's happening to them. So where are they? They're just letting it happen. In fact, like they're they're now getting eaten because the conservatives are kind of inoculated from this because they don't really hold any positions in the cultural institutions. (laughs) It's all just it's all just the liberals, the moderates and such. Right. There's a guy named Zaid Jelani, and uh, he writes uh, he's got a newsletter 
uh, at it's called Inquire, and I've got it linked up at the uh, the prep sheet as well. And he had a really good piece I thought about all of this, how America's founding inspired the world. And he said um, it should be noted that liberals have been somewhat more skeptical of patriotic symbols than their conservative brethren over the years. So it's not surprising how rapidly the left has embraced a sort of predictable iconoclasm, iconoclasm, the tearing down of institutions. So, right. So that's not surprising um, that they have embraced this where symbols of heritage and history are cast aside in pursuit of some kind of year zero where moral pollution is absent. This is always the kicker to me. I always remember Uncle Milty, Milton Friedman. When he did a he did an appearance on the Phil Donahue show, and um, gosh, he was so smart, such a happy warrior too about it all. Like he could he could tell you these things and break stuff down so simply, so everyone could understand it. And he did it all with a smile on his face and a great attitude and a just a really pleasant disposition. And um, Donahue said, you know, he he asked a question about, you know, well, shouldn't government be doing this stuff like for the public good or whatever? And uh, Milton Friedman said, uh, well, who are these angels among us that you think would do this stuff? Like, why aren't they doing it now? And like he says, it seems like you're assuming an awful lot of things like the people will behave differently when they work for government versus themselves that now they'll care more. See, and even I can't do him justice because like he was saying it was such a smile, like Donahue was smiling with him. (laughs) It's really amazing. Um, But this idea that, yeah, we'll just start everything right now. Year zero, new systems, all new systems in place. And when they say new systems, what they're really actually talking about are old systems. Hundred year old ideas from Karl Marx. This is what they're interested in doing. Um, when you can get them to actually explain what their new system looks like, of course. He says he grew up, Zaid Jelani says he grew up in the American South in the 1990s, and even the debates then did not have the exact same fervor or absolutism as the culture wars of today. He's from Georgia, actually. He says uh, it doesn't feel so much like it's trying to build a future where everybody is welcome so much as fundamentally indict Western civilization itself. Right. Well, that's there's a reason why it feels like that. It's because that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> that is that is the purpose. Correct. The whole point is to fundamentally indict Western civilization. And why? To take it down, to replace it with a new system. They're done with it. They don't want it anymore. And they're they're laboring under this. I mean, it's hubris is what it is, right? This fatal conceit that they'll be the ones in charge of all the new systems, that all of this stuff will affect all those other people. And, you know, they'll benefit and all, and they'll be happy with what they get. And I'll be really happy with what I get. I'll be installed in, you know, positions of power and prestige and such. And everybody will be happy and we'll be in charge and utopia will be achieved. If they're not lined up on the wall first and shot, which usually they are because those uh, useful idiots are usually the first ones to go well i guess after the conservatives um 
after the the radicals, after the uh, opposition leaders are all eliminated first. Now, if you are trying to eliminate like back problems or something, or maybe um, you got some big old uh, craters in your bed and you need a better bed, well, then head on over to Mattress Man. They got four stores. They got great deals and they got great mattresses. It's where I got my mattress. Go to mattressmanstores.com. Check out the inventory or walk on into any of their four stores in Arden, in Asheville, in Hendersonville, and uh, you can check out uh, all of the deals, like, for example, the free box spring with the uh, purchase of the Biltmore Collection mattress. These are made by Restonic. Uh, these are inspired by our own local landmark, and Mattress Man is an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection. Uh, you can also pick up a King Adjustable Base Set. Uh, you get great deals with the financing as well. You can actually go to their website before you even walk into the store. Go to the website and uh, apply, and you can get pre-approved for financing so you know before you even walk in the door what you're going to be able to get and for like what kind of deal is available they've got all sorts of flexible financing options available so you just got to go check it out um synchrony finance the like the 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 deal is synchronies which is zero down zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants but they got tons of other options available go check it out mattressmanstores.com locally owned and operated um and a five-star local delivery service and nationwide shipping and a 120-day comfort guarantee buy local and sleep better at mattress man stores mattressmanstores.com zaid jalani at inquire that's his newsletter how america's founding inspired the world he says that uh some of the uh, the culture war arguments and this iconoclasm this tearing down that the left is engaged in in so many areas of our society he says he doesn't feel so much like we're trying to build a future where everybody is welcome so much as fundamentally indict western civilization itself how often do you hear about a racial reckoning without any details about what such a reckoning would entail it's a great point he says why is uh why is it that Leading liberal politicians are talking about establishing a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to interrogate their police forces or investigate societal racism, something that normally happens immediately after a civil war or a mass atrocity. And I guess maybe, and I will point this out, that um, they would say, well, there was a mass atrocity and it was the slave trade and slavery in America for, you know, from 1619 or whatever, all the way through, uh, you know, the 1865 Civil War emancipation and then the Jim Crow era after that. So 400, 500 years, like, yes, that's a long time. And as such, there needs to be a reconciliation, truth and reconciliation committee or commission. Um He says, yes, we must face problems in order to correct them. But facing history also means looking at what worked. Right. Don't we need to do that? And wouldn't July 4th be the time to do that? I mean, all year long, we are subjected to critiques, criticisms of America, its founders, its founding, the original sin of slavery, all that has not been done for all the people, like all of the shortcomings, everything, every way we're not living up to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, all of that. So maybe next year, maybe we just, I don't know, say nice things about the birthday person. In this case, it's a country. It's not a person. I get it. I almost said birthday boy, but then I was going to say girl, but it's not a girl. All right. So it's America, the birthday country. Okay. 
I said this on the radio show the other day, like, I, I don't understand this desire, this need to walk into the birthday party and insult the guest of honor, right? The person that is being celebrated for being alive, and you walk in and start talking about how they have fallen short in all aspects of their life. Would you do that to a human being that you cared for? Would you? Would you take that as an opportunity to take them down a couple of pegs? Or would you go in, give them a present, celebrate their life, work on the stuff later, there's time for that later, but maybe this weekend, this birthday party, you don't do that. Whatever, whatever happened to that kind of, I don't know, approach in life? Maybe I'm asking for too much. But the constant critique also ignores the real power that the Declaration of Independence has and has had for you know, almost three centuries now. What it did, what it is itself. So I mentioned the NPR story, and it, NPR is not wrong that America did not quite live up to its own grandiose ideals at the time that it was written. But those ideals went on to inspire not only Americans, but the rest of the world for several hundred years now. As the historian David Armitage notes, it wasn't long before people overseas began to take note of the fledgling colony of misfits who decided to stand up to the British Empire. He wrote, quote, in January 1790, the Austrian province of Flanders expressed a desire to become a free and independent state in a document whose concluding lines drew directly on a French translation of the American Declaration. Many other nations followed suit, using similar language in their own founding documents. Much of the global South, including Venezuela, Haiti, uh, El Salvador, Chile, Mexico, Bolivia, Uruguay, Ecuador, Vietnam, all sorts of countries either directly copied from our Declaration of Independence or were at least inspired by it. To much of the world, the U.S., for all of its flaws, remains a tremendous inspiration. Gallup's global polling suggests that somewhere in the neighborhood of about 160 million people would choose to live in America if they could pick anywhere to move to. That's far and away the most popular place on the list. You ask everybody on the planet... And 158 million people of them are going to say, I want to go to the United States of America. Nobody else enjoys that kind of uh, image and support. And he points out, this is Zaid Jelani again at Inspire. He says, as we face off with China in global competition, most of the world still prefers the United States as a global leader. It seems, though, we are at risk of going from healthy critics of our country to opponents of it. And if we can't take pride in ourselves, how can we continue to inspire confidence in others? The Communist Chinese Party, I noticed this over the weekend, they put out a political cartoon that might as well have been drawn by any number of American newspapers, North Carolina newspapers for that matter, or North Carolina TV stations that for some reason feel the need to hire some uh, public school social studies teacher to attack Republicans um, in his cartoons. Yeah, that guy, Dennis Drawn, Drowen, or whatever his name is. Um, 
it was a picture of like these two, you know, two guys with in suits and they're toasting like, you know, so like uh, happy birthday, America, land of the free dot dot dot. And then there's some crazy person next to them, like with all these guns saying to shoot and kill everybody or whatever. It's so, like the, the Communist Party of China uses the rhetoric of the left here in order to attack America. Uh, Vladimir Putin has done this as well, adopting some of the language right out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Speaking of Black Lives Matter, Cori Bush, the Black Lives Matter activist who uh, parlayed that attention into a run for Congress, um, she took to the Twitter machine for the 4th of July holiday and said, quote, when they say that the 4th of July is about American freedom, remember this, the freedom they're referring to is for white people. This land is stolen land, and black people still aren't free. Okay. If the land, if you consider this to be stolen land, and this is an outrageous thing, why are you living on it? Why do you persist on living on it, let alone, why did you run for elected office that is an occupying force of that stolen land? You represent the government. You represent a whole boatload of people that are living on that stolen land. Why would why would you lend your efforts to perpetuate that injustice? Nobody will ask her this. Yeah, the, you can file all of this subject here under questions that Democrats will never be forced to answer, um, or they'll never be asked, let alone uh, forced to answer. But she also says black people still aren't free. What an incredible disservice to do to people. Convincing, convincing people that they are enslaved when they are not. What are you doing to people? Have you actually stepped back, or has she, and she hasn't, has she stepped back to consider the kind of psychological impact that that has on a population? To tell them that you're not going to be able to succeed, you can't succeed, you will never be able to succeed. I'm, I'm just... I'm just amazed at how often this kind of destructive and abusive language and rhetoric gets a pass all the time, all the time. There's a psychology professor named Jeffrey Miller. He wrote The Mating Mind, as well as Spent, Mate and Virtue Signaling. Uh, anyway, he uh, and he writes at primalpoly.com, and um, he said, he responded to this, and he said, when American politicians journalists, teachers, pundits, and activists use the national holiday to tell you loud and clear that they hate our country and feel ashamed of its history, listen to them, take them at their word, and then update your worldview accordingly. I think this might be the final year for me that, um, that I give you guys this kind of leeway, this kind of latitude. I'm trying to be as charitable as I can. I really, it's like something I'm working on to be, to try to be more charitable to people. And so I'm trying to convince you now, it's still your flag. This is your country, right? Like nobody, you, you, you're a part of this. We are a good country. Yes, we have had bad things. We In the past, there's still bad things. We can fix them, but it's worth saving all of it. At some point, though, and I don't know when, I'm going to try as long as I can because I think it's important. But at some point, I'm going to stop trying. And a lot of other people are going to stop trying as well. And when we stop trying, 
I think a lot of stuff shifts, you know, because now you're no longer viewed as just an opponent seeking a similar destination, but a different course to get there. Now you're seen as, and I even hesitate to say this, but you're now going to be seen as an enemy. And I know there are a lot of people that already view their fellow countrymen as that. I don't. I don't. But I don't know how much longer that can last. Because this psychologist guy is exactly right. If you're going to take the, the, the opportunity to attack somebody or something on their birthday, you're going to use that as an opportunity to try to destroy them then I need to recognize why you're doing that. And you, you're going to lose the benefit of the doubt. That's what's going to happen. Um, what's going to happen when you go to old Grouch's military surplus is you're just going to get some really great real U.S. military surplus. That's what you get. Um, in fact, you can pick up like ammo cans and gun accessories and backpacks and camp equipment, rain ponchos. He does get some body armor every now and again, but it's getting rarer. For some reason, everybody is really interested in getting body armor recently. I'm not sure why. Um, also, gets you a first responder kit. This is, uh, it's like a duffel bag. It's massive. And it's got like, well, it's not massive, but it's, I mean, it's a good like two feet or so. It's 350 components all stuffed in there. And it's got room to grow also. Like you can add more stuff because, you know, sometimes you get some of these things and it's like you open them up and you need to get a Band-Aid out of the kit and you take one Band-Aid out and then nothing ever fits right back again, right? It never goes back in. This you will not have to worry about. And by the way, um, all of these kits are uh, made, they're assembled in North Carolina. They come in a durable, bright orange bag with reflective strips, so it's well-marked. It's instantly recognizable as a first aid kit, um, and so you got to have it at your workplace, got to have it if you're part of a scout group or a sports team, class, uh, a classroom um, uh, environment. So anywhere you need a first aid kit, this is what uh, where you need to uh, go to get one. Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and, of course, 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. Speaking of Cory Bush, we have one of our candidates for U.S. Senate in North Carolina that is very interested in doing a fundraiser with her. Yeah, Democratic U.S. Senate frontrunner, Sherry Beasley has agreed to a joint fundraising committee uh, with U.S. Representative Cory Bush, Democrat out of Missouri, and two other progressive candidates, according to a Federal Elections Commission filing that was dated mid-June. This is Matt Mercer's story at the North State Journal, NSJOnline.com. Cory Bush is a member of the Justice Democrats, which advocates for a, quote, mission-driven caucus in Congress, by electing more leaders like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman, who will represent our communities in Congress and fight for bold, progressive solutions to our current crises. Beasley is the only Senate candidate on the list. Sherry Beasley is the former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And that should terrify everybody, (laughs) the fact that she has no problem hooking up with Cori Bush. Maybe it's just politics. I understand also that she's uh, gotten like her campaign management staff is all from out of state. Apparently, this is a problem. There's not a lot of uh, successful North Carolina based campaign management. 
It's what I understand. I'm not in the Democratic circles. I've just been uh, informed of this, but apparently this is a problem. And uh, according to Beasley's FEC filing, she authorized the joint fundraising account on June 18th. The account is set up at Amalgamated Bank, which sounds like a cartoon. Um, It's a Washington, D.C.-based bank. It's owned by the SEIU Labor Union. Yeah, they own a bank, apparently. State Senator Jeff Jackson, which is her current top challenger in the Democratic primary, also houses his campaign account at that bank. Coincidentally enough. Finally, California's Democratic Attorney General Rob Bonta added five more states to his list of no-go states for California state employees. Florida now tops the list, which I was like, wait a minute, Florida hasn't been on your list of banned states yet? California has banned like a whole bunch of states. And at first I was like, if North Carolina is not on this list, I'm going to, I have some serious questions about what we're doing. Um, But don't worry, we are on the list. We're actually on the list already. We were already there. This is just new states that are now banned. If you are, (laughs) if you are looking to travel as a California state employee, you now cannot go to Arkansas, Montana, North Dakota, West Virginia or Florida, they are now all added to the list. The state employee travel ban, except under limited circumstances, because there's always a way around virtue signaling wokeness in government. The other states on the list, if you're curious, are Texas, Alabama, Idaho, Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Kentucky, North Carolina, Kansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Back in 2016, California lawmakers began this banning nonsense, says Karen Townsend at HotAir.com, in order to send a message that they don't approve of legislation passed in your state legislature. Um, She goes on to say Bonta points a finger at red state legislatures and say they should focus on real issues like gun violence, beating back the pandemic and rebuilding our economy. Now, red states are actually outperforming blue states when it comes to rebuilding the economy. Unemployment's actually recovering the fastest in red states. And they were the first to reopen, to allow businesses reopen, people get back to work, like all of that stuff. Uh, yeah, you got to go down to North Carolina at rank number 15 to find a Democrat governor in any of the top 15 states. So there you go. That is a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to the podcast, and I'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>